everybody. Welcome to This Ocean Life Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Peterson. Today's episode, we have a great guy named Josh Smith, a marine biologist spending his time underwater in the kelp forests of California. Now, Josh takes us through his research to understand the changes in kelp forests that we're seeing here with the relatively recent explosion in sea urchin populations and the interactions of other animals who live in the kelp forests, like otters, abalone, sea stars, and how they're involved. We hear about the day-to-day operations of doing research in the cold waters of Monterey Bay, the physical demands of daily scuba diving, and talk about how the loss of kelp forests and other changes to our ocean environment may be part of larger cycles that we humans just haven't been around long enough to understand yet. Josh also shares some neat perspective on the importance of mentors, both in the water and on land, to help us pursue our calling. Now, if you want more on marine biology topics in California waters, see another uh, related episode with Steve Lonhart. I'll put the link in the show notes. So, Thanks for supporting the podcast. Thanks for being here and sharing Josh's ocean life with us. If you like what you hear, always appreciate a good rating in your podcast app. And even more importantly, cutting back on the plastics, bring a reusable cup to Starbucks instead of using their stuff. All right. Thanks for being here. Now, let's get into the ocean life of Josh Smith. Hey, Josh. Welcome to this ocean life podcast. Thanks, Josh. (laughs) Great name. It's good to be here. Um, I'm big fan of the show so it's really cool to be on this side nice man no i'm stoked um what you're doing today is one of the like uh, as we were mentioning as we were chatting when you first came in like kind of like a sliver of a past life of mine which is like full-on hardcore marine biology diving doing cool stuff here locally in our monterey santa cruz water so i'm been psyching to come to have you over to chat man yeah it's great to be here um yeah i mean this is sort of the marine science hub of the west coast yeah um and man i i just i love the water love diving um that's what got me into this and yeah i guess i'll i'll start by saying i i've been here for about eight years now in monterey bay um and i started off um as an undergraduate i did my undergrad at csu monterey bay um and didn't really know much about the ocean. I mean, I, I'd, I'd grown up fishing and done a little bit of saltwater stuff. Um, Where'd you grow up at? I grew up um, sort of East Central Valley, what Clovis. Town? Clovis, yeah. Yeah. Um, beautiful. Spe- <laughs> Good one. Um, the mountains are beautiful. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I spent a lot of time up no, there. It's cool um, there. You know, got out of the Central Valley every yeah. chance I could get. Yeah. Um, but grew up doing a lot of fishing and um you know, I came to CSU Monterey Bay, started studying environmental science with, you know, the intent to do something aquatic, like, you know, forest ecology or stream ecology, something like that. Um, and basically my first year I was told, hey, you can, you have to do PE. Like you have to get some sort of yeah. you know, PE requirement. Right. And so they told me I could either go walk around the track or I could take scuba diving. Wow. I was like, that's a pretty clear-cut decision. That was easy. Yeah, that was easy. Um, and literally, after that first dive, I went into the advising office and changed my major to marine biology. Really? Yeah. And so the first dive was in a pool or the first like ocean dive? First ocean dive. Yeah. 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 I mean, pool stuff is like, yeah, this right. is cool. But when I actually got in the water, I was like, whoa. You were just like I, Yeah. I had no struck. idea that it, these kelp forests here are so incredible. Yeah, yeah. Wow, and where was that dive? It was like probably Cannery Row, like uh, 
What's that beach right there? Right by the bright breakwater. Yeah, that breakwater, was, San Carlos yeah, Beach. Right, yeah, right. I mean that, which is know, actually a pretty beautiful little spot. You know, man, and and we can go into this in a little bit, but you know, I've I've dove ninety percent of my diving's been in California, but I've dove all over the place in the state. Yeah, um, and some of my best dives have been right there, right where it all started. <laughs> it's something about yeah. that place. It's just it's funky. It's just no. Fun. I agree, man. When I when I was down there working at the sanctuary, we'll talk about this, and that's part of your life today is interacting with those guys and Steve Lawner we had on is. I just jump out after work at San Carlos Beach right there. It's where every dive class around dives at least once or twice. It's where you have your beach dives. It's like a little mini MPA, like marine protected area kind of thing. And I remember it's, it's those magic days when it's like, you're only on like 20 feet of water. You don't need to get deep and there's just fish everywhere. And I remember actually I got so hooked like you, like my second or third dive there. I looked down, there's this massive halibut just sitting there yeah. in the sun. It was just hanging out, yeah. you know? It is a cool little spot, man. You have the, the breakwater and you can go creep around and look in the crevices and cracks and everything. Yeah, <laughs> it's that's, cool. that's what's so cool about living down there. It's like, you could always find a place to go diving yeah. just about any day of the year. Yeah. And so in college, I would just, you know, hop in the water between classes because it was right there and there was always just so much to see. Yeah. Yeah. Now, what about, so the rigors of learning to dive in the area where we are, which is cold-ish water, you know, there's other places colder. Um, the water sometimes is greenish gray, not always crystal clear. There are those days for sure. Um, and then we'll talk about the rigors of science diving, which you're doing now, but just early on as a kid from the Central Valley, jumping into the cold Pacific, you know, was it, it didn't matter. Or was it a, sort of a learning curve for you, I guess? Yeah, you know, I mean, it was there was definitely a learning curve, but I had nothing to compare it to because I had never been in warm water. Yeah. I, I had never been yeah. diving anywhere else. So the first day I was in the ocean, I mean, like I said, that was a pivotal moment. I, I literally changed my career path right after that first dive. But I remember that first dive was like really? not... Now it was, you know, where the bar's at for me now. Right. That was not a very good dive. It was green, <laughs> yeah. it was cold. You know, um, I remember like half the students had their arms interlocked because we couldn't even see each other. It was like um, that. It was like that. It was that bad. But it was still just being underwater and in a kelp forest and you can magic. still see, see things on the bottom and yeah. stuff. Um, it was just magic, you know. Wow. And then as, as things went on, you know, I had those great days where the viz is like 40 feet you know oh, yeah. in my basic scuba class and oh, i mean man. you know that that class was only you know eight or ten weeks or something like that maybe a little bit longer actually because we were on the semester system then but man it's like i just got so hooked yeah 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 and, and you know i think so anyone who goes in the water just we all share that experience yeah. you know it's just it's addicting yeah. and it's just sort of this euphoric experience. Oh, you know? it is, it is for sure. So now, finding diving and you're stoked for it, like I can relate, many people have on the show can relate. Now, if you carry forward to today, where you're at here in Santa Cruz, um, you're pursuing a PhD in marine biology, and there's a lot of interesting things you're doing, again, that like I'm familiar with, but I'm really excited to hear more about. So talk about what you're actually doing, what you're studying, because basically you're out in the water a lot, designing experiments and studies to understand a phenomena, a problem, 
depending who you are, you call it different things that's happening out there right now with the kelp totally. and the urchins yep. and the abalone and the stars. And there's a lot of different pieces to it. So it's a really interesting story, puzzle, mystery, all the above. So take us through that. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, it's this whole big story that's um, still unfolding. Um, and so I actually feel like um, I've been pretty fortunate because I got into diving at a time where um, I started diving here locally before things really started to change. So I know what the kelp forest looked like before all this change that I'm about to describe actually happened. Cool. Um, and so when I first started diving, I remember going out and um, you know there's just kelp everywhere, yeah. all over the place. We, there were days where we'd pull up the boat to go do a survey and the kelp's so thick that we'd have to anchor outside of the kelp yeah. and s drop down and swim under the canopy to get in shore where our dive site was actually at because we couldn't get the boat in. Um, and also an important element of this is the sea stars back then. We had one really important sea star called the sunflower star and they get massive, like the size of a family pizza. Yeah. Um, and I remember back then they would just be cruising around on the right. reef. You'd see them. You'd see them. Um, they were pretty common. And so um, the sort of factor that sort of kicked off all of this change was in 2013, we had this massive sea star die off. And I mean, it totally decimated that sunflower star I just described. Right. Um, to the point where I haven't seen a single one of those stars in years. You have not? Not not a single one. Whoa, I didn't know yeah. it was that bad. Wow. I mean, that species probably got hit the hardest. Whoa. There were other species that got hit hard and have since recovered, um, but the sunflower stars have not come back. And they're the big guys, so as you mentioned, they're pizza size, and they have how many different arms? They got d dozens. Yeah, yeah, they're just big guys, and they're, they're, they're just mowing the reef scratching, eating kelp and algae and? Well, one of their really important, so the, the sunflower stars are really important predators because they just eat everything in their path. But they, one thing they really like to eat are urchins. Oh. And so um, we had this major sea star die off and just about a year after we had um, the blob, which right. is this really yeah. unusually warm seawater right. temperature that was kind of hanging around in the Northwest Pacific um, and, or the Northeast Pacific. And it sort of worked its way down along our coast. Um, and so the water here got pretty warm. Right. And because of that warm water, the kelp tanked because the kelp needs right. that cold, nutrient-rich water to survive, like we just described. The bad visibility, you know, it's because yep. the water's really cold, there's right. lots of nutrients. So we had this loss of a major predator, the sunflower star, then kelp tanked. And so the urchins then came storming out of the crevices wow. to go look for food. Out of the shadows. Yeah, totally. Yeah. So what happened is before these events, the urchins were just sort of down in the crevices and you know their food was being delivered to them. Right. They normally eat drift kelp. So it's kelp that's detached from the main kelp plant, the stipes, and it's just floating by into these crevices where the urchins eat it. So if you're an urchin and the food's being delivered to yeah. you and there's predators outside, right. you're not gonna go out looking for food. But if you know if the pizza man's not delivering, yeah. 
better go you got to go get your food right um and so all of a sudden we saw all these urchins come out of the crevices and they just totally decimated kelp right um here in monterey bay it's really patchy so on a single dive we could be swimming through a patch of kelp forest swim through an urchin barren where there's literally no kelp and right. urchins everywhere yep and then swim into another patch of kelp um, and that's really interesting because you know we have sea otters here right. which eat urchins and, and we can get into the sea otter piece of the puzzle in a second but on the north coast of California north of San Francisco Bay up in Mendocino County um, it's much worse you know there's no sea otters up there right they also had the sea star die off and it is near complete deforestation no kelp. I mean very very little kelp. wow you could go for just miles of coastline and it's all barren like Mendocino coast all that stuff it's yeah. usually like just stacked up with kelp is just yeah it's wow, gone geez. and it's origins and so um, you know like you mentioned the abalone um, the abalone eat kelp and so just this last year um, we had a, a closure of the abalone right. fishery because the abalone are starving. To There's death. nothing for them. They're to washing eat. up on the beach. Yeah, yeah. I mean, right. it's it's pretty spooky. Yeah, it is. I remember um, hearing about it, and then having done a bunch of diving back in the day along Big Sur into Carmel, and I remember going um, diving one of the sites. You've probably been there. Is Pescadero Point? Yeah, right outside Pebble Beach. Right, very yeah. iconic. Pescadero points also ghost trees this massive like big wave spot it's really cool kind of seeing the bottom how these waves yeah, break but, yeah yeah and Pescadero is like a classic you know um, scientific diving spot yeah like, you dove Pescadero you're it's, it's probably a scientific diver it's beautiful yeah. it's a rad spot but I remember diving it and I can remember these spots and went back with Dave Benet who you know who's been on the podcast and is just an amazing guy in the water to go spearfish there it was probably less than two years ago that I hadn't been there for probably call it 10 8 or something right and dropping in and just a motoring just first motoring out out of Stillwater Cove Pebble Beach and just like whoa where's the kelp well it, you know it comes and goes so it wasn't I'd heard about this and then diving in actually doing a dive like well usually when you go spearfish you want to find some kelp you know because that's a probably good indicator of fish swimming around we didn't see any so we ended up diving but i remember just like what is going on around here and as soon as we dropped hit the bottom it was like carpet of purple of urchins yep you know and it, it, it was like holy shit found some fish fine but then there was this one stalk of kelp and it was it felt and maybe you know like it's it's attracting blue rockfish and olive rockfish and I was like, why? There's there was these big rockfish, and they were just like, you could see it. I mean, yeah, they can move, they can yeah. swim, they can find something else, but for, they were just gravitating. Just and I was honestly sh laying at the surface, <clears throat> shooting these fish as unsportsmanlike as it is. I'll admit it. it the The fact was, you would never see these fish that close to the surface. It was like 15 feet of water. It was the only kelp around, yeah. and they were just like, it's like they're oasis, you know. And that hit me. I was like, man, it's these poor, the, the implications of this are like wide, it felt like. Man, you know? yeah, I, I hear you. And I mean, maybe some, you know, some people who are familiar with the area locally can relate, but that area that you just described at Pescadero Point, that's another spot where I remember, that, that that's also one of my favorite spearfishing spots oh. and kayak fishing spots. Yeah, yeah. Um, and the kelp between the point there and there's this little sort of 
island rock called fire rock that's yeah. like this little nub that sort of just adjacent to the point between that rock and 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 the point yep. the kelp used to be so thick in there that you barely get a kayak yeah, through it. Like walk on it. Yeah, yeah. You can walk on it. Um, and now that channel is just totally it's clear. It's crazy. Yeah. It's crazy, man. So then you're, you're, so you've described the scenario as best as you, you know it. Now, what are you doing? You're, you're pursuing a PhD. So your job day to day is to try to figure out the whole story, one part of the story. So tell us about what you yourself are doing around this. Right. Yeah. So, um, I entered the PhD program right when things were really starting to take off. Mm. We were really starting to see some urchins and some kelp going away. And so right away, I just dove into this sort of theme um, with the intent to explore what really caused this outbreak. Was it the loss of sea stars? Was it really the blob, Um, you know, the warm water and and the kelp loss? Or is it something else? Um, and so my dissertation is looking at those questions, um, but more importantly, uh, um, I'm looking at what will ultimately reduce sea urchin populations enough so that the kelp can recover. So will it be otters that eat urchins and allow the kelp to come back? Will it be the recovery of sea stars? Maybe it'll be something else. Maybe um, it'll be a big... El Nino event, which yeah, we had, it right. didn't really seem to phase the urchins right. much, but um, you know, maybe a big swell yeah, could just out. wipe them out. Maybe it'll be urchin disease. So I'm looking at all these factors, um, and I'm doing it locally. So he, just just here in Monterey Bay. So my strategy has been to focus on a small area. So I'm just doing the breakwater yeah. at, in Monterey, um, right on Canary Row, out to the end at, at Point Pinos, and that area is about. Um, a few kilometers of, of coastline. Um, and so I've been closely tracking that area right. for a few years now. Wow. And so throughout that whole area, I have 120 random points that I go and dive every single summer. 120? 120. Wow. Yeah. A, so that, say that number, 120 points, but the, the physical distance between those two, it's a couple miles. Yeah, it's a couple miles. So you're just like, you've seen, which is really cool because you have in your mind, this is one of the things that like is talking with Steve Lonhart doing long-term monitoring. We go to the same spot twice a year for five years. Yeah, You kind of get this like sense for what lives there and what's changing, but you see much more granular. Right. Like that's pretty cool. Yeah, that's a a really important distinction. It's like, I wanted to, and that's part of my strategy is to really just look at this small area, which is, you know, a couple miles, um, and to really just explore that area and see how are things changing. Yeah. So I described earlier that it's really patchy. There's patches of barrens, patches of kelp forests. Well, some of the questions I'm looking at is how are those patches changing? Are the sea urchin barren patches getting bigger over time? Are they getting smaller? Are some patches changing and others are not? Right. And if so, what's driving that change? If they are, if they are changing, what's driving that change? If they're not, what's also yeah. driving that? Yeah. Um, you know, again, is it is it predation? Is it urchin disease? Yeah. Is it going to be a swell or a disturbance? Um, you know, what will ultimately um, allow the, the the kelp to recover and, right. and re, you know reduce sea urchin populations? Um, and so. 
the past couple years, I've really dug into the predation element. That was sort of my first focus because one of the sort of burning questions we all have is how in the world did we get urchin barons in Monterey where there are sea otters? Right. Because the right. classic you know, paradigm is that otters eat urchins and in areas where otters eat urchins, there's kelp forest because the urchins are not eating the kelp. Yep. And Monterey is sea otter country. Yeah. I mean, it has the a, highest density of sea yep. otters anywhere in the state. Um, and so this was really just sort of perplexing. Like, how in the world did this happen? Right. Um, and so I, I partnered with the Monterey Bay Aquarium, USGS with Tim Tinker, um, and we went out and started tracking sea otters and observing what they were eat, right. what they were eating, where they're eating urchins. Um, and then we went out and we dove places where they were eating urchins to see sort of what that environment actually looks like. Um, so in other words, where we see otters eating urchins, right. are they eating urchins in places where there are a lot of urchins? In right. other words, it's, it's a barren, or are they eating urchins in a kelp forest? Yeah. And so, that would have implications for the ability of sea otters to control yeah, sea urchin right. populations. Correlate the otters with yeah the kelp. Yeah, uh, right. Controlling the, uh, the urchin population. Yeah, and so um, after two years, um, we we found something really interesting. We found that um, well, first I should say that at, at every single site we go to across those 120 sites, um, we collect urchins and we bring them to the lab and we dissect them because we want to know how healthy they are. Mm. Um, and so there's actually a commercial fishery for urchins yeah. um, up on the North Coast, and their insides are often sold as uni um, yeah. and, and consumed. And so um, we, we are collecting urchins and dissecting them to see how healthy they are in the barrens and in the forest. Um, and so what we found is that in areas where otters are eating urchins and eating a lot of urchins, they're going after the really healthy ones. So otters basically have a choice. They can, they totally. can go to a kelp it's forest a where the urchins are super healthy, or they can go to a barren yeah. where there's tons of urchins, but they all suck. Right, because there's, there's, there's nothing, nothing for them to eat. So they're yeah. all like kind of weak, purpley, and then the big vibrant purple guys in the kelp forest having right. a plentiful heart, a bounty of food for themselves. Yeah, totally. So, um, <sighs> so yeah, the otters are pretty smart actually. And in fact, they're eating more urchins now than ever, which is interesting because there are more urchins now than ever. Uh, but the really key thing it, for the predation element is where those otters are eating the urchins. Right. They are mostly ignoring the urchins and barrens. Yep. They're going to those kelp forest patches and just yeah. pounding the urchins So in there. theory, they're like kind of guarding, protect, they're allowing the kelp forest as it stands today to continue because they're keeping the urchins at bay. Yeah, that, that's what we think. Um, you know, like I mentioned on the north coast, north of here, where there are no sea otters, yeah. there's there's no kelp. Wiped out. But here, there's still a few patches of kelp. Yep. And it may be because otters are doing this really intense, focused foraging in these forest patches. And so they're just helping to maintain yeah, a few there. more patches of kelp, Yeah. which is really cool because in the future, if... A, a big swell comes through and wipes out the urchins or an urchin disease hits, then there's a source population of kelp nearby that yeah. can help to recolonize yeah. those, those empty right, areas. Right, right. Yeah, and that's cool. Yeah. And one thing too that uh, 
I like about, well, the, again, back to my friend and you, you spoke with Steve Lonhart, who's an amazing scientist and just a stud in the water. One of the things, we talked about this a little bit, and it's so easy to be really reactive to this when you hear the story. And there'll be some questions I ask you, but like, let's go all get pole spears and let's get 10 buddies and go sh kill as many urchins as we can, right? Because you want to do something and yeah. that's cool. That's very noble. But I remember his perspective on it was like, look, every, there's a lot of cycles, a lot of cycles we don't understand, big ones, smaller ones, right? And this might be one of those cycles, you know? And so to your point, let's pretend and let's say that at some point the urchins will diminish knock on wood because I love kelp forest you yeah, know? yeah right right and the kelp might come back or will come back you know so it's like it does, it, you can choose how you see this this issue you know it's it, totally. it, it plays into your heart at some point for people who love diving and everything but yeah no I, I completely get it I mean <clears throat> you know the the thing is is urchin barons are nothing new right we've seen them in in many other places around the world um We've seen them in Southern California for a long time. Um, it's the first time in sort of, you know, our modern time yeah. that we've seen it here. Yeah. And so, you know, like like Steve mentioned, who knows what's happened? We've yeah. only been here for uh, just a little Such blip, a blip, right? Yeah. And so who knows what's happened in the past? Yeah. Um, I mean, this is, this is sort of the cycle. Yep. Um, and... And so, yeah, I mean, who who wants to see the kelp being just completely, yeah. you know, demolished? I mean, yeah. we we love kelp forest. That's that's why we're in it. Um, but you know, from sort of a, a scientific perspective, this is actually a really cool time to learn about why these things happen. Yeah, it's like a natural field experiment. Yep. Um, and yeah. so the fact that it's it's happening now and and we're closely monitoring it will really help inform how we proceed, how yeah. we go from here. Right. Um, and so, you know, like you mentioned, there are there are places where people are sort of taking a, um, a more sort of active role and going out like on the North Coast, they're going out and starting to, to cull urchins. Mm -hmm. And it, it's mostly organized by um, diving, you know, yeah. sort of recreational spearfishing communities and yep. such um, and you know it's still just a really a, a time to learn yeah you know I mean right. it's a question of well will this will this really work yeah um, here locally you know we have a lot of protected areas and so that um, effort hasn't begun here right um, but you know again we're we're closely tracking it um, and we are also trying to spin up some experiments where we actually remove different numbers of urchins in a certain area and see if the kelp comes back. Mm. Because, you know, going out and culling urchins, it may work. You know, if you get rid of all the urchins, sure, the kelp will probably come back. But that's a lot of effort. I mean, yeah. it's, it yeah. takes a yeah. full <laughs> army to go out and do that. Oh, man. And so, Especially when you go to these spots, like we mentioned the barrens, like a Pescara Point, you're like, holy shit. Yeah. It's like, imagine, like, it's a giant rock as big as my house and you can swim around it in a couple minutes and over it and it's just purple. Yeah. <laughs> maybe there's 10,000, maybe there's 5,000, I don't know, but there's so, and there's another rock just like it right over there, packed with them. It's yeah. insane. I mean, you know, an area the size of your house, gosh, it would, 
it, it, yeah. it would take weeks with yeah. the army. Like it just. But one thing too, and I, and if you got rid of this, let's say let's say we went out right now with a thousand with a thousand guys and gals, and each of us removed whatever a hundred urchins in a day. Right, so let's say there's a hundred thousand urchins, and on my house, size of my house, let's just pretend we 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 nuked it. Right, there's now a race between the kelp coming back and the urchins that are next door spawning and recruiting yeah. and landing and then regrowing. Right, so it's right. like this; it's a race now. So, what's your sense for who might win that race if you wiped it out today? Yeah, which would, yeah. which would come back first? Yeah. So I have a couple of thoughts on that. I mean, um, one of the key things is if you, you know, I don't care what size of an area you remove all the urchins, you have to have a source population of kelp somewhere right. nearby right. that can colonize yeah. that area. I mean, if you're, I don't know, a hundred miles away from the closest patch of kelp, it's going to be really yeah. hard for that kelp to find that, right. that, you know, small empty rock that you just cleared. Settle on it. Yeah. yeah. Um, huh. um, but well, and, and again, on that point, that's why, you know, here where it's so patchy, all, you know, if the urchins were to get wiped out, it would be much easier, yeah. I think, for the kelp right. to recall. Versus North coast where it's like nothing for yeah, miles. Totally. Right. Um, but you know, the one thing that could just completely you know, turn this whole ship is urchin disease. Yeah. Um, and you know, look look how fast the sea star disease hit. Right. I mean, from Alaska to Baja, it decimated stars in a year, and and it, it sort of lingered around for a couple of years after that. Um, an urchin disease, you know, it would be just mass mortality. Yeah. I mean, there's so many urchins living right next to each other right. that are starved and already stressed. Yep. So if a disease hits. It could just totally reset this yeah, whole thing, yeah. and I mean, the kelp could have a good year, and we're right back to where we were, you right. know, six years ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who knows? So, if you had, this is one of the things I was thinking about asking you. So, if if you had a, a crystal ball, and you got one question to ask of it, right? It would give you the straight answer to all of the different questions you probably have. <laughs> what would be the one answer? you would like to get right now that would help fill some piece of the puzzle what would that be man gosh this is a tough question <laughs> you're like you i have what? 20 of them you know well <laughs> the thing that i've learned from working these systems i mean everyone's told me since i first started studying kelp is that um you know these are complex systems yeah there's no one fix all right. solution that you know things are just complicated um, and for me, that's really exciting. Um, I like to know the different pieces. Um, and I, I don't know that I can answer yeah, that. I yeah. mean, <laughs> in, in fact, I might also, I, I might be disappointed if there's one solution to it all because right. I like, I like the complexity of it. Yeah. Um, and I think that this story highlights just how complex these systems are. Right. I mean, there's so many moving parts, so many factors. It's predation, it's the otters, it's the stars. Right. It's um, it's the kelp and the water temperature, right? And um, there's even more things. I mean, I could keep going. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, that is cool. It's it's like CSI. You know, if you ever watch like the crime scene investigation, where like, what? How did they figure this out? And oh, look at this too, and they put it together. But this is like, it, it's so complex. It really is. So then, 
If you're looking at one other factor, as we talk about, you know, you mentioned the warm water blob we had, which is ties now into warming waters or warm water for a period and then dissipated. But in a world now of rising ocean temperatures, in theory, um, maybe not so much here, maybe other places, do you see or is that a concern for a couple degrees or a couple tenths of a degree or whatever that might be that might impact the ability for the kelp to recover if they get a chance to do so? Totally. I mean, without question. Yeah. So we've already seen how a marine heat wave can really affect um, the ability for kelp to grow. Um, and you know, some kelps like bull kelp on the North Coast yeah. do all their growth in a single year. And so water temperature is really important. Um, and in fact, we've already seen, and, and, and other researchers have, have studies that have shown that kelp is going to shift northward because um, things are getting warmer, right. you know, they're shifting northward to cooler water. And here, you know, I can tell you just in the short time I, I, I've been here, we've already seen southern species show up. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, and I mean, you know, when we have major El Nino events, there's always a few southern species that show up, but they never really sort right. of establish. Yeah. Um, but in the last few years, the El Ninos have been stronger more frequent um, and we're sort of in this time now where this heat wave the marine heat wave so to speak is not really a heat wave anymore it's kind of the norm yeah like things are warmer yeah um, things are showing up that don't belong here or you know they haven't they haven't yep. been here and they're starting to take hold and and um, in fact just um, Steve and I were talking about this recently Steve Lonhart um, and um, he's put together a whole catalog of, of, of new species that have been observed here. Yeah. Just the last couple of years, I found a handful of new species that no one's seen here before. Right. <laughs> it's crazy. It is crazy. And um, you hear these, it's cool too, from like the, the fishing perspective where you, you know, myths, legends, rumors, and lies. You're never quite sure what you're actually hearing, but then you'd be like, oh, I saw a sheephead at you know the breakwater, or there's a resident lobster now at different spots. And then you're like, okay, yeah. And somebody like actually have a friend of mine, he was fishing at Ani Nuevo, right? I mean, that's a center of upwelling where the water's pretty cold. And he caught a legit calico bass. Like, I got a, a calico bass. I'm like, bullshit. And he showed me a picture, I'm like, that's a calico bass. Yeah. That's something you see at like Santa Cruz Island. Totally. There were a couple um, uh, giant sea bass that were caught here. Really? The last couple of years. Oh, yeah. That's I exciting. know of at least two. That's exciting. Um, Those guys are so sweet. Man, there's so many things showing up. In, in fact, um, I was on a dive two years ago um, right out in, it, in front of Hopkins on the deep reef. Yep. Um, yeah. And nearly the whole reef was covered in a sea urchin that I had never seen before. And it's called um, the white urchin, Lidocinus. Wow. It's a Southern species. And there was literally like a barren of Lidocinus. And you were tripping like, and I was what? Like, Whoa, this is crazy. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. Let's pause real quick. I'm gonna, this thing's gonna die. Um, one second. This guy. Okay, so Josh, so a lot of good perspective. And again, like I mentioned, we, I could sit and talk about this stuff, this story. It's so fascinating, not just from like 
piecing things together perspective, but from being out there and seeing it, it's, it's, it is super fascinating. But to switch over to the other, I guess, side of your interest of being in the water, which is not so much studying and understanding, it's you fish you dive and you spearfish and everything, you know? So, so talk about day to day, like how, two questions. First, let's just hear about that, but also give your spin on <laughs> if your, all the diving you do for research, if it gives you a little bit of a edge, so to speak, when you turn into hunter, you go into hunting oh, yeah. mode, you know, because yeah, right. you see the water, right. you see these things, like, the, you know what I'm saying? Um, yeah, well, um, <laughs> so to answer that 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 part first, um, I, I put in a lot of time, right? Like, you know, a lot of people, you know, the, the weekend warriors go out and put in their time to find their spots. Um, and I'm out there every single day, <laughs> whether or not I'm hunting or doing science underwater. So I cover a lot of ground. Um, and you know, there's, there's places that I, you know, oh, I got to remember that yeah, rock yeah, for a little a, mental a note. There's yeah. A couple of big fish in there. Today. Yeah. Right. Um, of course, when I go back on my own time, they're never of there. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So man, I, yeah, I just, I do a lot of saltwater fishing, yeah. um, a lot of hook and line stuff. Um, you know, to be honest, like, especially over the summertime, it's like I'm diving every single day for work. So when Saturday comes around, yeah. the last thing I want to do is go jump in cold water. I want to so, see the ocean. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So <laughs> I, um, I actually do a lot of kayak fishing. Oh yeah. Um, and that's, that's just a blast, you know, especially when you get a, a big lean cod or a big halibut yeah. that tows you around. Right. Um, that's man, that, that's a lot of fun. It is cool. So what's yeah. your setup like on your kayak when you fish? I'm, I'm pretty basic, yeah. you know, um, grad student can't afford a super nice Hobie right. kayak, no you know, depth, with depth, the depth finder or GPS. Yeah. Well, I, I actually, I actually just put one of those on, but, um, yeah, I just like, man, actually, <laughs> so this is funny <laughs> in, in high school, um, I went out and just bought a sit on top kayak off of Craigslist. And it's that same kayak that I dive today. Same one. In fact, it's probably getting pretty close now to like retiring. Really? It's getting a little scary to be out Why? <laughs> on the water. It's got some. It's got a lot of patches now. Yeah. And, and and just you know the material's been out in the sun so much. It's just right. baked. It's brittle. Yep. Um, so there's like a little scrambler sit on top ones. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. Those things are so cool. They're so freaking bulletproof. Man, I'm you telling know, you, I, I've I've fish that thing not just on the ocean but in rivers yeah lakes i've taken it you know camping oh, and yeah um i dive off of it all the time not so much anymore but i used to both tanks and free diving i mean i just load it up yeah um so yeah they're a blast especially because you know just just with a kayak you can access so many other places yeah um and just you know it's literally just wrapping around the corner of Pescadero Point or just getting right outside of where somebody could actually swim, you know, just opens up a completely different area. Yeah. And you get out there and you feel like, whoa, like, you know, I'm out here. You yeah. know, it's, it's pretty cool. It is um, way cool. And so, yeah, I just done a lot of hook and line, spear fishing off the kayak. Um, and, you know, more recently it's, you know, the diving's really picked up for, for research, right, um, and so um, the the 
know, recreational diving, if you will. I couldn't even tell you the last fun time. dives. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Diving stops becoming fun when you do it for work on huh? yeah, like, so often, you know, it's, it's a pretty interesting place to be. I mean, it's like, I, I'm so you know fortunate and grateful that my job is to go out and go diving, um, which it's the coolest thing, you know, and, and I don't take it for granted for a second. Yeah. Um, you know, over the summertime, I'm diving three dives, you know, four days a week, five yeah. days a week. Wow. And the weekend comes and I'm beat and it's like, man, it's like, it's so hard to get up in the morning and get out there. But when I do, it's just, you know, it's like, man, there's just always something new, Yeah. which is one of the coolest things about this job is that no dive is routine. Right. There's always something Ever. new. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that's one thing about like, the science diving it's interesting when people hear and i remember having this conversation with steve lonhart about oh you get to dive for work lucky you You're like well actually it's really freaking hard yeah it's really hard yeah like really physically mentally it's taxing it's challenging because you just don't show up and like here's your tanks just go dive it's like dude you're hooking the boat up you're getting you're loading your tanks do you have your food do you have all your stuff you're you're driving down you're putting the boat in the water you're motoring out you're diving and it's cold it's rugged and then you gotta come up and then you're swapping tanks and then you're getting back. It's like, it's it's a long ass day, you know? And so for you, like what what is like your your typical day on one of your sites when you do those three dives? Like take us through one of those days. Yeah, so I mean, you, you covered most of it. Um, we, you know, every day during the summer, you know, Monday through Friday, it's get up at 5.30, yeah. be at the lab around 6.30, load up the boat, the truck, the tanks, make sure you got your, your crew there, everybody's got their lunches. Um, and importantly, you got all of your sampling equipment. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we got it carry a ton of shit underwater. I mean, it's like, just, there's just so much gear. It's yeah. not just scuba gear that you take underwater. It's like, you, we just got all kinds of stuff that we use to survey yeah. and do our research underwater. So you gotta make sure you have everything. Cause if you're missing one piece of your gear, like, your whole day could be foiled. Oh, man. And and you wanna make sure you have it before you yeah. do the hour drive to Monterey, launch your boat, do, you know, however long it takes to get out to your field site, anchor up and then realize you forgot, like, you know, uh, your weight belt or something. Right. It's like, yeah, oh, you can't do that. Um, so, so yeah, we're out on the water, um, do three dives a day. And like you said, no, most of the time it's cold. The wind picks up in the afternoon, um, you know, cold and foggy in the morning, sunny, windy in the afternoon. We just get beat and burnt, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. beat by the wind. Right. And it's like, your face is just so brittle at the end of the day. Cause the wind and the salt and, um, you know, the sun and you're just cooking and, yeah. Um, then, you know, we got to load the boat, grab gas, do the hour drive home, <laughs> yeah. clean up all your gear, wash your equipment, wash the boat. Um, and for us with the urchin dissections, we have lab work to do at the end of the day. Oh, you do. So oh, man. man, by the time we finally get all of that done, it's six or seven o'clock in the yeah, evening. It's a solid um, 12 plus hour day. Oh yeah. And then you wake up and do it again the next day. How deep are you guys diving typically on your sites? Yeah, so um, our sites are between about five meters and 20 meters. 
sometimes that that's that's about it um average depth is around 12 meters or so i'd say um you know like 40 feet or so yeah um and yeah we dive you know at least three dives a day sometimes four um you know dive nitrox it allows us to stay down longer you feel better guys you feel yeah you feel better we need it because yeah if you're just yeah if you're just diving like straight air fills um man you just feel it you get home and it's like you just sit down and it's like don't talk to me for the rest yeah. of the day. i i <laughs> i have <done>. words <laughs> so then when you're out spearfishing like um where do you like to go so i mean you a lot a big your stretch where you're doing your your research it i think and it spans into some of the marine protected areas also or no oh yeah yeah because the um, breakwater over yes yeah, so there's hopkins there's a couple of them yeah so yeah. there's there's actually um only a very small area of the total area that i dive yeah. that you can actually take and Got go spearfishing in okay and so in fact um that place is an urchin barren and i just don't really spend much time there yeah right. um you know if i'm gonna go down there and go spearfishing i normally do a little longer drive and go a little farther south into Carmel, um, yeah. where there's some, you know, some bigger fish, some right. some healthier kelp forests. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I've I've done a ton of diving in Carmel for other projects, right? Um, which have, you know, take taken me to some some cool places that yeah. you know I've revisited at later yeah. dates. Um, yeah. So what are you thinking though? And I hate to switch back. Not hate to, but I got to switch back to the science thing. Get your thoughts on something. So. You figure, if you think about what we chase out here, spearfishing in general, call it like a lingcod, right? Is like a trophy status thing. A cabo, nice cabazon's nice. Yeah, and you yeah see a big halibut guys. or something. A nice halibut. Right? But yeah. on the reef with like, you tie a lingcod into the equation, the story of what you told the kelp and everything. The lingcod are looking for little small blue rockfish usually. And other things swimming around. Who typically gravitate towards kelp uh, structure as well but you yeah. know and so are you seeing got call or quantify any like man you know what the link cod are more scarce because there's less kelp and so there's less small fish for the link cod and so they're they're in different cracks or they're in any if you noticed anything man so um great great question um in fact we have a paper coming out really soon oh about i gotta that read question. it man. yeah um so what we've seen is that, um, you know, again, here it's really patchy, patches of kelp, patches yeah. of barrens. Um, there are things, you know, of course the algae is like the first thing that's affected. Not just kelp, but there's other red algae and, and other kinds of brown algae that grow on the reef. Those are the first things to go away. Then we see other things go away, other, you know, abalone and things like that that depend on the algae. But sort of these higher level animals like fish, yeah. Um, it's a little trickier to mm. actually see how they're affected because um, fish are just hard to work with. Right, they're uh, just, just so mobile. Yeah, so mobile, um, and and so it, it's it's hard to say. You know, I yeah. can tell you just from being out there, um, there are some fish where it's like, well, what happened to those guys? Like, I haven't right. seen those You're guys like, in a while. Huh. Yeah, certain rockfish. Yeah. Um, and not just rockfish, but especially perch. 
Um, yeah. There's they like love kelp the perch kelp. that love kelp. Yeah. And when there's no kelp, it's like, yeah. you never see those guys. Even those big ones, like the big pile perch, those guys, they just, they love the freaking kelp. Yeah, you know? they love kelp. Yeah. Um, and so certainly those, you know, in areas where there's no kelp, it's like, yeah, you don't really see those, you know. Yeah. Y- y- you'll definitely notice that they're not there. But um, bigger, sort of mo- more mobile predators like lean cod, cabazon, um, I feel like I still kind of see them in bears. I mean, yeah. I you know I haven't actually looked at those species to right. see how they're how they've been affected by all this, but um, just anecdotally being out there, yeah, um, I still see them cruising. You by. still come across one, and it's not yeah. like you haven't seen one in your spots for like eight months or something. You're like, dude, I don't know, I don't see these things. Like they're still out there and popping yeah, they're around. kind of still out there. Yeah. yeah, you know the Cabazon in the in the Barrens, um, they have this really cool morph where they just turn the color of the Crestos coral and algae oh, yeah. that we see growing on the reef. Yeah. It's a really pink algae that grows all over the reef. Um, and, and there's also encrusting reds. These are not algae that grow off the reef, but right. they actually grow flat on the rock. And so the cabazon actually yeah. take on that color. I love that. And you like put your hand down on a reef and the reef moves and you're like, whoa, what was that? And it's a cabazon that looked then camouflage just perfectly yeah, with pink and white all modeled like yeah. pink and white camo oh they're yeah. so beautiful oh, i love those little guys man yeah <laughs> so then how often are you again you're 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 in the water so much for work um when do you get a chance or when do you get like fired up to go spearfish or something you know do something more recreational is it like after you you've had some time off from the field season or you yeah. know yeah um man any chance to go spear fishing or hook and line fishing, like I, I take about just every chance. You'll I do get. it, yeah. Yeah, um, it's more you know like recreational diving. Yeah, that's sort of a term I've almost lost. It's like I don't really know what that means anymore. <laughs> you know, just to go out and go scuba diving without counting something in the yeah. water. It's like I, you know, I, I couldn't tell you the last time I did that. Right. But but spear fishing, hook and line fishing, you know, all that stuff. Man, it's like. I take every opportunity. Yeah, cool. So um, you still got that fire, that stoke, oh, even though yeah. you're in the ocean so much. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's awesome, man. So then how close are you to completing your dissertation, getting finishing your PhD? Where are you at in the whole process? Yeah, so um, I think I got about another year and a half to go. Um, the way things kind of roll out, it might be two years. But um, this this will probably be my last field season this coming summer. Yeah. Um, and I'm already starting to scale back. You know, I've done so much diving over the last four years um, that I now the, the the pieces of the puzzle are starting to come together. Yeah. Um, and so there are certain elements of the diving, you know, things I've been tracking and recording before that I don't need to do anymore. You know, like uh, the urchin dissections and, yeah. and and the otter foraging. Those questions are just about resolved. Um, of course, the story is still unfolding, and there's still many more questions and exciting things happening. But um, the diving sort of scaling back for this coming summer, um, and beyond that, it's just um, you know tying up right. the, the loose ends, sort of packaging up the whole story, yeah. writing it up, and onward yeah so so what would you what do you think could come of your work you know is it goes up to fishing game goes up or you know like what what would be the out the in a perfect world scenario for you which is we don't live in but still back to the crystal ball thing what would what would you where would you love to see your work go towards yeah yeah great question um you know for me 
personally, you know, as, as a scientist, my sort of philosophy on what I do is just, um, I want, I want to know why things work the way they do. Yeah. Um, and importantly, you know, that information, I want to, I want people to be able to use that information in order to better the environment. Um, and so my, my hope is that by answering some of these questions, putting the puzzle together, I can sort of give the completed puzzle to somebody in charge, you yeah. know, some, some right. practice that will be able to actually say, okay, you know, this is the information we need in order to go yeah. forth and, and do this plan. Right. Or, you know, like if, if the state says, hey, this is the kelp force we want to have, and my research helps inform, um, you know, management strategies that could help to preserve that kelp forest yep. or ensure its its longevity. Then, yeah, yeah, I, my job's done. Right, <laughs> or right. that that accomplished. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah, yeah. That's cool, man. And one of the things too that I you had put and you wrote up a little bio on yourself that struck me, and. I, I get it also, and this will be a form of a question in a second, so it's like go around yeah. this in circles, but um, you had mentioned sort of the importance in for you of like, um, and I, I'm gonna say it wrong, but like academic mentorship or just the, the importance of like having this deep academic training, deep, and also tying into like mentorship, somebody who's there and like supporting you that you can learn and grow from. And we mentioned a, a person I dove with, um, like Mark Carr, you know, hopefully he's gonna hear this and remember, yeah. um, I can tell some funny stories of him underwater, I'm sure you can too, but um, a legend, right? But also, and I even, I wasn't a student, but worked tangentially with him and very mentoring, very, you know, one of those guys who you would just, you learn from and so I'm, Tie that back to you, and so as you are about to finish your studentship, you're not really a student anymore, but you kind of are, right? Yeah. Um, is that something you, where you see yourself going, becoming, finding a position where you can help rear the next generation of scientists and provide that mentorship and that academic training, like how you had it, you know? Yeah. Is that important to you? Man, that's it, exactly. Um, I, you know, that mentorship, was so important in my development and sort of where I got to now. Um, and now I realize the value of it and I realize that for my whole life, I'm going to have mentors. Yeah. Like I'm just getting started. My, you know, my career hasn't even fully start right. began yet. Um, and so I realized that over the course of my whole life, I'm gonna have people who are more experienced and just about anything I'm doing, um, who you know can provide insight and sort of coach me along the way. Um, but you know, I think the most important thing to remember is that the path for somebody to get to their end goal might be different than what you experienced. Right. But you can still provide insight and sort of steps to help them achieve mm -hmm. their goal. Um, and so already, you know, in grad school, I've mentored dozens of students yeah. and high school students as well. Um, and just about every summer, my dive team is myself and two or three undergraduates who are brand new in the water. Yeah. And it's really. their first you know, field season. And for most of them, it's 
quite a, a, a shock. <laughs> it's an awakening. Yeah, it's like, whoa, you know, research diving. Like, where's, you know, where's my hot tub when I get out between <laughs> the dives? romance of marine biology. Yeah. Where is it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, they realize that, hey, we actually live on, um, you know, baked potatoes and chili yeah, over like... the summer. Yeah. And um, so, you know, it's just amazing because I've already seen and, and had students that come in they you know they have you know 20 or 30 dives under their right, belt they're brand new fresh and by the end of the field season it's like well yeah. first i'll say you know at the beginning of the field season it, it's a struggle yeah sure <laughs> it's a struggle you know like those 12 hour days get even longer because you're just you know mentoring and 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 but training yeah really but by the end of the field season it's just we're like a you know just yeah, a machine we're in it a machine and yeah. it's like you know I don't have to tell my team anything we just do it yep um, and everybody knows what to do and I've had several students go off I've had students get into grad programs students um, go dive for um, state agencies um, all the way up the coast into Oregon and Washington and they're off doing research diving yeah, now cool. and. It's just cool, you know. Yeah. It's like, hey, you know, I remember when I was in their position. Yeah. Here I am now, and they came through their program and sort of had their own experiences along the way. But now they're off, and it's just part of the process. Yeah, you know? it is. I think that's really cool because it's such a difficult world to be in up front, you know, and because there's so many different factors: the physical factor, the gear, the protocols understanding your species there's so many different things and if you were with somebody as you like as a team leader who you could make or break it for somebody new and a budding marine kid who's a 19 year old freshman who's just like ah marine biology yes and it's like who need but you need help because it's complex it's challenging you know and so to have somebody who could mentor you and is willing to and and you can and you find value in doing that you know it's i can just it's yeah. a really important thing i mean for yeah that, and you know in this field there's just there's so many other parts you know marine biology is not just going out and diving it's yeah. um it's doing lab work and yeah. stuff on the computer and being able to um use math and computer modeling and and statistics and um, being able to write and communicate well. There's so many parts of it. Yeah. Um, and so the mentorship, yeah. it just extends across all of those yeah. different elements. Yeah, it's true. One thing I've noticed, and again, I'm so detached from the whole world, but um, you have a really nice website. And I remarked, I remark upon that because it's, I mean, I've worked with a lot of other PhD students back in the day, and that was a while back. But you have this really nice website where it's about you. It's like the different products you've released, presentations, what you're doing, opportunities to get involved. It's really cool. And so I guess my question is, is that kind of a part of this world now where you have to do all this great research, be a mentor, do all this stuff, you know, write papers, do presentations, the normal stuff, but also kind of market yourself a little bit because at some point you're going to be done with this phd program and you're going to try to go get a job somewhere yeah a job job yeah yeah you know right and so is it is, is it part of what you're doing with your website or in general is this part of the game like what you have to do is kind of start 
call it marketing, call it promotion. I'm not sure, but is that part of what you have to do is kind of get your stuff out in the world so that when the time comes, you drop a resume on somebody at fisheries or who knows where. Yeah. You know, is that? Yeah, no, I know. I know what you mean. Um, I would, I would call it just visibility. Yeah. Um, it's just, you know, you can, as a scientist, you can write papers and publish and you can be visible to a scientific community. Yeah. But to be visible to other people outside of that bubble of scientists and your community, you really got to just sort of branch out a little bit. Yeah. Um, And I've tried different things. Initially, it's really hard for me. You know, I tried, um, you know, social media and stuff and Twitter and Facebook. And um, it was just difficult. Like, I just, I'm just not a big social media person. But what I found is that. Um, I really like sharing photos and videos. Yeah. Granted, I'm not a photographer by any means, but it's like, I like sharing photos and videos of research and b- being out in the field and doing stuff because then people have a visual and they can connect right. a little bit more. And so I started using Instagram yeah. um, and found that it's it's not been as sort of tedious as Twitter and stuff. And it's, it's more fun because I can actually yeah. like, be out in the field and you know snap a picture of an otter or a whale or something and boom send it and then like yeah. I, I i'm sort of building this other community and, and i can post videos and stuff and i do the same thing on my website where i'm sort of trying to just make myself visible but also bring other people in to just see you know what marine biology and yeah. being a scientist is like right you know i mean it's 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 just such a unique experience and um i i yeah so i just use my website and my instagram as yeah. sort of an avenue for visibility really it's cool man i like both of them i think you do a nice job because i think you know it's we are you doing this stuff so repetitively for so many years you kind of take for granted that you, you get in this, I noticed when I was in this realm a while back is you get in this bubble where you think everybody else knows what you're doing and what it's like, but they don't, man. Like it's a, it's, it's a, it's a very small little, very cool world, but it's very different than like the dive shop down the street who's gonna take people down. They have no idea what you do at all. Yeah. They just don't because they're, they see it differently. And so it's really cool to be able to, um, to share via visual means is great video pictures and website just so somebody might find it and be like whoa cool i didn't know that yeah you know totally uh, yeah i love that and and also it's it's been cool for me to just kind of step back and think about you know like you just said like i'm i'm so just in it every day but to step back and be like what's the bigger picture and like yeah what are the sort of the the key messages the key points that i want people to know um you know like People are starting to know now that urchins are deforesting yeah. kelp, you know, in, in reefs around central and northern part of our state. But what they don't know is that there's a whole bunch of us out there yeah. tracking this so closely, right. trying to figure out, you know, what's going on, what's going to happen in the future, getting all this information. And so that's what I want people to know. Yeah. And I want, you know, I want people to know along the way, like science moves glacially slow. Right. I mean, you know, it's like by the time your published paper finally comes out, the project's been over for years. Um, but I think there's, 
you know, things are changing so fast that I think it's it's good to just try to keep people informed about what we know is yeah. as researchers being out there and and you know as things are changing just sort of along the way yeah. you know like yeah um i just posted something the other day about urchin diets and and how looking at urchin diets might help tell us what their grazing behavior is like um and this is something that will probably get published later on yeah. like way later on but um it's just a little piece of the story that just you know it takes five or 10 minutes to put together a video yeah. to send it out to the world and start bringing people into some of the things yeah. that are happening here. Yeah, I think it's cool. I mean, I think it's really important. And while it's not, it's not a mandate for what you're doing as a PhD student or even as a professional, but the more you can share with the world at large, the higher the chances, however small they still will be, that somebody just, it resonates with somebody and gets them off their ass to maybe vote for somebody. Who, they yeah. might make a connection totally. with the resource, with the kelp, because they were they spent a summer in Monterey, they love going to Cannery Road, they're from Iowa, they don't know anything, but they found your Instagram and there you are diving like, yeah, I remember that, well, there's no kelp. Dude, I went on a kayak tour and there was kelp everywhere. There's no kelp, that sucks, what's going on? Somebody might actually do something who otherwise wouldn't, you know what I'm saying? So yeah. you, might, well, you'll, you may never know, you can't quantify that, but yeah. I, I do believe that it's however the things we do, if you can share it in a way that might attract somebody who otherwise is detached from it, it's nothing man. but good, you know? Man, that's it, and you know, Sometimes you do know, um, and you know the last couple of weeks um, I gave a whole series of um, K through 12 school assembly talks oh, up in Pacifica and Half Moon Bay with the Pacific Beach Coalition, um, and I, you know, myself and two others gave these talks, and we reached over 6,600 kids. Whoa! And after some of these talks, some of these kids would come up to me and be, you know, say. I had no idea that this was happening in our backyard. Wow. And they would say, you know, I'm so motivated. And I was so inspired wow. just by their motivation and their, you know, motivation to take action. And, yeah. and I, like that to me is just so important, That's you know? So, cool. so these different things, you know, like being out and being visible, being visible on the internet, but also physically you know, and, and giving these talks and stuff. Um, it's just, it's, it's becoming more of what I do. Yeah. Um, and I've, I've really enjoyed it. You yeah. know, it's kind of like, it, it brings, you know, I'm, I'm always first and foremost going to be a scientist, right. but um, it, it brings into perspective sort of what I do and why it's so important. And not just thinking about information and knowledge gain but yeah. also about hey you yeah you in the central valley this is why you should care about yeah. this and it's so important i know you don't see kelp forests every right. day but they're actually really important yeah and you probably actually use kelp a lot more than you think yeah, yeah. that's right oh man I, I don't know if you heard not to like hype up the podcast but forrest galante so he has a show on animal planet discover is it discovered animal planet it's called um uh extinct or alive Anyway, I'm gonna say this really briefly. He went to UC Santa Barbara, marine biology, dove, very, he, he went on that show. So he was a 
a marine biology student, scientist, right? He was doing work down there. He went on the show Naked and Afraid. Oh, yeah. He got picked for it. So he went on there, right? And he's like, he, he didn't care for one, but he was like, instead of like being scared of the snakes, like he was actually picking them up and sharing what this thing was. Like he's just this really well-rounded oh, yeah. guy. So he, and cause he, and he tells the story, you would love to hear his story, it's epic. He's like, look, I had an opportunity. I realized that I was naked sitting in this jungle wherever it was for a week or whatever, two weeks of the shooting. He's like, I was gonna reach X million of people who watched this dumb show so he's like I took the opportunity to actually educate people he's I wasn't trying to make a career man I was trying to be a TV star but yeah. he's like, I realized and it's the coolest thing he's like all I want to do is share why this 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 snail is so cool you know and it yeah. was like the raddest thing and he just like randomly that turned into where he's at today which is in, it's awesome but you should read his story just like what you're saying it's like yeah that's uh, it's cool. just the opportunity to share when you can do it you know yeah um, exactly it's cool um so Last question then, or last sort of option. So you're almost done a year and a half-ish, and then like, where would you like to land afterwards? It's to set up shop as a career and a perfect, like longer term, is there a perfect scenario that you're, you'd love to do? It sounds like, is it academic? Is it like? <clears throat> yeah, um, I'm, I'm pretty well on the academic track. Yeah. Um, I, I, I think, that would I would be really fit in academia because mm-hmm. um, I really like teaching, mentorship, but also doing research, um, and so that's kind of what I've been doing. You know, as a grad student, I, I do research, I teach, I'm a mentor. Yeah, you're you know, doing it already, I'm a writer, yeah. and um, so I I'd really like to continue this area and continue doing research in, in temperate cold water reefs. Yeah. Um, I. I don't know where you know I, I I can't really pick perhaps an ideal physical place to yeah. land. Um, you know I love Monterey Bay, um, but there's some pretty cool places up and down the West Coast. Yeah. You know all the way all the way up to Alaska and down to Baja, um, and so there's just so many cool places out here um, to research and, and to continue studying, and so. You know, ideally, I'll land an academic position somewhere and and be able to continue to do research in, yeah. in Gulf Wars. Solid, man. Solid. Well, I wish you the best of luck and uh, definitely appreciate you <laughs> tolerating all my, my, my questions about no, the man, science stuff. I could, yeah. I could keep going all night long, but I really appreciate you sharing your time and stories and everything with us and yeah. for putting your hard work into what I consider, and I think many most people will, a really important issue. You know, just understanding how things are changing and what we might be able to do about it. Hope you know, who knows? So thanks yeah. again, Josh. Really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks, man. It's been great to be here. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. Awesome. Well, cheers. Cool, cheers. All right, man. <clears throat> hey there. Thanks so much for listening to the podcast today. We really appreciate all the support. Uh, if you like what you heard, uh, please, you know, uh, hype us up on social media. Always appreciate, you know, spreading the word. Uh, give us a nice little rating on the uh, your podcast app and uh, just keep tuning in. If you're interested in being on the show and sharing some of your life stories, uh, hit me up, josh at thisoceanlife.tv. You can PM me on uh, Facebook or Instagram. Anyway, thanks again for being here and uh, have a great day.